there's never been an investment vertical for Silicon Valley that's got the uh, return profile better suited. I think the acronym for that is SHTTE, which I believe is shitty. So short time to equity or short time to exit. Sorry. So shitty VCs love that short time to exit. And in, when these things are just outside the reach of regulators at present, just like online gambling was in the aughts, they can get away with it for now. And basically what it lets you do is you, you know, create your own security. You can pump the heck out of it, uh, not following any of the rules that uh, actual securities industry participants have to follow. Like there are all kinds of rules about what you can and can't say about stocks and bonds and all kinds of different offerings, right? And there's no one to hold them to account. And as long as they can pump the thing enough to get out of their you know, initial position plus some, it's completely riskless for these guys because they're, they're selling it you know, for like 20X on the first you know, sort of public sale versus what they invest in. Hey everyone, thanks for watching this episode. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you like and comment below. And to find future episodes in your feed and push notifications, make sure you subscribe. And if you click the little bell, you'll get every new episode as it's released. Thanks again for watching. Today I'm sitting down with Corey Clipston, the founder and CEO of Swan Bitcoin and GiveBitcoin.io. Corey also serves as an advisor to Unchained Capital and Riot Blockchain, and he is a partner at Bitcoiner Ventures. As an advisor, he has supported more than $250 million in funding since 2016. And as an angel, he has invested more than 20 VC-backed tech companies. Today, we will learn about Corey's early years, what he did before founding Swan Bitcoin, his Bitcoin origin story, the origin story of Swan Bitcoin, his thoughts on the Federal Reserve and how it may or may not impact Bitcoin, and Plan B's stock-to-flow model, and a few other things. So with that said, let's dive in with the one and only Corey Clipston. Hey guys, I'm going to take a quick pause to introduce the first sponsor on The Jay Gould Show. I am happy and proud to say that this show is now sponsored by Witham Smith & Brown, which is a forward-thinking, technology-driven advisory and accounting firm that is committed to helping big and small companies be more profitable, efficient, and productive in today's complex business environment. Witham now also has a dedicated crypto and blockchain technology team to help early-stage businesses properly navigate all the crypto tax-related matters. I've been using Witham both personally and professionally for nearly a decade for all of my businesses' personal needs as well. I'm very happy with them and I highly recommend Witham. You can contact Witham by visiting their website at Witham.com. Now back to the show. Corey, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jay. Good to be here, man. First question I ask, everybody comes on, comes on the show, tell me the five people that you surround yourself with professionally these days, because they say you are the average of the five people you surround yourself with. So give us the five people you, you're hanging out with, talking to on a daily basis for the last few months. Oh, man. I mean, it's going to be all members of the Swan Squad, probably, because that's uh, that's who I see and talk to every day. So uh, Jan Pritzker, Brady Swenson, uh Probably uh, Stephen Lubka, who runs the Swan Private Sales Team. Dijon Balahadal on uh, on Twitter for him. Uh, probably trying to think who else I actually like. It's a big team now. It's like thirty five mm-hmm. people. So who I actually uh, like talk to a lot. Probably talk to Tomer Strolight a lot because he's our editor in chief, and I'm mm-hmm. kind of a content guy, and that's such a big part of our brand. So and you end up talking to him a lot, uh, and then. I'd say probably at least you're talking about like the last three or four months. Yeah. I'd say probably uh, Kristen Thompson, Speak, Serve, Grow on Twitter because she's kind of running like PR and events. 
they're all Bitcoiners and they're all on my team because that's just what I'm mm -hmm. immersed in right now. Um, I could give you a different list of people outside Swan, but uh, yeah, that's pretty much who I'm, who I'm chilling with these days is the Swans. Let's go back to your early years. Tell me where you grew up, socioeconomic conditions. What were your parents? What did they do for a living? Siblings, schools that you went to? Let's kind of walk through Corey as a kid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, yeah, I like to joke that I immigrated to the United States uh, at about eight and a half. But uh, the reason I say that is because uh, my parents met on Haight-Ashbury in the 70s. And uh, I was born into basically like a, a commune, spiritual seeking kind of situation up there in San Francisco, Northern Cali. Um, and it wasn't until we moved to Seattle and uh, finally started public school for fifth grade when I was like nine that I was like, oh, okay, this is, this is not what I grew up with at all. This is interesting. Um, so yeah, I think that was, that was interesting because I, I got a, an outsider's view on how this place works. It made me really observant, made me really kind of open to people from different backgrounds and, and kind of uh, always been a lifelong student of social behavior and motivations of different people because I kind of had to learn real, real quick when I got thrown in the mix, uh, jumping into public school after that uh, sort of different beginning. Um, years later, after spending, you know, 15 years in Chicago and New York, uh, it was funny because I kind of didn't talk about that origin story or that background the whole time I was out East. And then you get back to California and like, if your parents weren't hippie, Hindu yoga meditation of some kind, when you were growing up, like you're the weird one. So it's now it's just kind of like normal. You talk about it all the time. Um, but yeah, I grew up in, I would say I grew up in Seattle. That's the family seat. I'm a, you know, Sonic Seahawks Mariners fan. Uh, finished high school up there, uh, was really into journalism and thought I wanted to do uh, t TV reporting and anchoring, whether that was going to be like news on CNN or, you know, sports on ESPN or something. That's really what I wanted to do. I went off to a, a good broadcast school for undergrad at University of Missouri and uh, actually reported on the local NBC station while I was in school, which was great because I got it out of my system, found out I actually didn't like it. And, you know, this was mid late nineties. So the internet was blowing up all around me and I just was doing a lot of stuff online. I'd been online since 93 and I was building websites and I built the station's website and kind of used that to backdoor my way into tech. I, um, uh, I got an internship with Microsoft in 98 and then went to work for them on an early interactive television product, uh, starting in 99. And that's how I got out to the East coast, um, back then. So I worked for a lot of big companies in my career and it was never kind of the right fit. I never really liked it. I was always kind of looking for six different side hustles and always get involved in other things. But I worked for Microsoft. I worked for Morgan Stanley. I worked for McKinsey and Company after business school. And then later uh, as a way to get into tech and get out of sort of, you know, consulting and private equity, which I've been doing. Um, I went to Google for a couple of years and uh, I left Google and summer of 2013. And I had started investing and advising a little bit before leaving Google in the early stage startup scene. But after leaving Google, and I was now in LA, since then, the last eight and a half years, it's just been full-time early stage tech for me. Uh, you know, Probably invested in 40 or 50 companies, advised another 20 or 30. There's some overlap where I did both and uh, looking for places to operate. And obviously that led me to uh, what I'm doing now. And I think you reminded me, I didn't realize when you were Google, you you remembered my company. You said, I, I think I know you from the Google days. We had a thing way back before it was Yashi. It was called Gamers Media. And I think you might have remembered my company, you said at one point. One of the clubhouse rooms, you remember, brought them up. I remember hearing about Yashi, but I think where we really got uh, connected and I heard your name a lot was um, 
I met Lou Kerner, our mutual okay. friend in 2013, really soon after leaving Google. And we've been friends and mixing it up with startups, especially like media slash ad tech inflected stuff uh, since then. And he was always telling me about his buddy Jay. And I don't know, it was probably one of those things where we like may have gotten invited to the same thing, but never, <laughs> never met up. But I was aware of you back then. Um, just didn't meet you until, uh, until Bitcoin. Tell me your origin story to Bitcoin before we get into Swan Bitcoin. So tell me how you first got introduced to Bitcoin. I've heard this on other podcasts, but I wanted to hear from you for first person. Um, your first introduction to Bitcoin, what you thought of it when you originally heard about it, when you started to fall down the rabbit hole, kind of get, walk me through all that. Yeah, well, I swung and missed once. I swung and missed twice. And then they, they hung a slider on the third one. And I just, it was so meaty. I finally caught it. Um, but yeah, somebody gave me Bitcoin at a, at a like tech media conference. Uh, I remember January 29th of, uh, of 2014. Uh, it was like an eighth of a Bitcoin. It's like 50 bucks at the time. And uh, I was on a blockchain wallet and I you know, had it on my phone and I was just super busy. I was in the middle of like raising around for an ad tech company and it just, it didn't take, I didn't look it up. I actually had Bitcoin in my email from like 2012, but didn't pay attention at all. I searched for it at one point. Um, so yeah, that was a swing and a miss. Lost the private key, lost the wallet, lost the phone, whatever. Um, and then... Almost two years later, Christmas of 2015, uh, a friend of mine, it's uh, like a longtime advisor to companies coming out of Stanford and Andreessen and stuff like that. And he had uh, eight companies he'd rolled into a series LLC and he asked me to put together uh, like a deck and a sales plan for selling off like half of the series LLC, like mashing it all together into a portfolio. And uh, one of the companies was Ripple, which wasn't going to help you understand Bitcoin. And the other one was like Balaji's like toaster mining thing and, uh, you know, mining with appliances, whatever, 21E6, that, that crap that ended up selling to Coinbase. Um, that didn't really help me understand Bitcoin either. So that was my second swing and a miss <laughs> trying, to, trying to figure out that. And then uh, the hanging slider was just uh, all the noise in the price run up of uh, early 2017. Yeah. It was just really hard to miss. I was hearing about it everywhere. Um, you know, I was in the Silicon Valley ecosystem, like very heavily. So mm -hmm. obviously it was very sort of crypto inflected. And, you know, the first person that made me take a look at Bitcoin had just left a plum VC position to, you know, run BD for mesh labs, which became Orchid, I think, um, okay. something like that. Uh, luckily, as I started to network into it, one of the big crypto fund managers who's actually based in LA with a few billion under management, uh, insisted that I read digital gold and buy some Bitcoin first. Uh, even though he wow. was off doing Chinese ICOs all day and stuff like that. <laughs> he was like, just start with Bitcoin, trust me. So that always stuck with me. So thank you, Tucker. Um, and um, so I did start with Bitcoin, but then you're looking to the same people that you look to for advice on SaaS and market networks and mm -hmm. video companies and all this other stuff, which is like, you know, I was devoted reader of uh you know, AVC, Fred Wilson's blog and Andreessen Horowitz yeah. and all this stuff. And, you know, there was just so much going on in this crypto stuff. So it took me about 11 months to do the shitcoin horseshoe where you start with Bitcoin and you explore all the shitcoins <laughs> and like you have this realization that, oh, my God, these guys are just full of shit. And uh, I'm just going to focus on the thing that actually matters. Um, so that for me was, yeah, like March or April of 2018, I kind of saw the light that you know, Bitcoin was the thing to focus on. And yeah, I mean, you could probably mix it up with insider games and, you know, play Ponzi-nomic stuff and pump and up or whatever. But, you know, I'm the guy that, you know, left vitamin water as, in, you know, I was in top 50 employees there as a summer internship in business school. And I decided not to go back because all the execs drink diet Coke because vitamin water has too much sugar. Like <laughs> if I don't believe in the product, like I can't, I just can't sell the thing. I can, I can bullshit about it with for a minute, but I just can't. 
I can't get involved in something I don't actually believe in. So, uh, yeah, so I basically spent about four months extricating myself from my crypto activities because uh, I'd hired like 12 people for a nine-figure crypto fund and I was the president and chief investment officer. So I got out of that by like <laughs> August and uh, I think I was in Turkey for the whole month of August, just like sleeping and reevaluating. This is 2018, and right? This or is 2018, yeah. 18, okay. Yeah. 2018. And then, uh, yeah, and basically hit the ground back in Los Angeles in September, trying to figure out what to do in Bitcoin or if I could do something in Bitcoin. Yeah. So I was just still still helping out some old, you know, SaaS companies and stuff like that and doing the advising consulting dance um, and really looking hard at what I could do in Bitcoin. And I actually had a bit of a payments background. So that was the easiest thing I mm -hmm. thought would be to get involved. And so I started sniffing around the payments companies and thinking about, you know, what can we do with, you know, medium of exchange here? Mm -hmm. And my exploration at the time anyway, led me to just believe that it was just way too early for uh, venture scale revenue and like massive returns mm -hmm. in medium of exchange, because you've got to kind of establish an asset as a store of value before it becomes a widely used medium of exchange. Mm -hmm. And so that led me to think, you know, I've got to do something about just getting people to buy and hold lots more Bitcoin. And that's, that's what I should do. Uh, I spent about three or four months working with uh, Stephen McClurg, who's now the founder of Valkyrie, um, on the initial idea with him. This was mm -hmm. soon after he split from Arca, and he was a former Guggenheim PM um, on doing like a closed-end fund that would have Bitcoin and like some levered treasuries, but mm -hmm. like 80% Bitcoin was kind of the cap you could have to get that on pink sheets. But as we got closer to getting it approved he ended up selling it to Galaxy briefly before separating from Galaxy and doing Valkyrie. As we got closer, I realized if I do this, the only thing that I can do after the thing is approved is sell the damn thing, which means I would be selling to agents. I'd be selling to portfolio managers who manage money for other people. And then you don't get to have the fun Bitcoin conversation that changes somebody's life. You know, you're, talk you're talking about trying to get somebody off zero, you know, with like BS narratives around, you know, stocked flow or some bullshit that's trotted out this week or something. And, uh, you know, or it's a, it's an inflation hedge, you know, this mm -hmm. month, but not usually or whatever. Like, I, I don't like that, you know, I, I like, I've, I've seen it so closely for so long from so many friends in finance, having gone to university of Chicago and like half the class goes into banking and they're all out in New York doing their thing or whatever. But like, you know, you, you, you read Barron's and some research reports on Sunday, you just like come up with three or four trial balloons that you're going to call your clients with on Monday. But all you're looking for is a story. If you want an example of like yep. what it looks like when somebody's just looking for something that can travel, uh, like Raul Powell is like perfect example. Like he doesn't actually care at all about the veracity of what he's saying. He just cares about like whether it's something that he can sell because that's mm -hmm. what he comes from. So it's not, it's the difference between somebody who actually has skin in the game versus someone who's just trying to sell a story mm -hmm. and looking for the transaction, yeah. right? So bankers are looking for the transaction. It's different from the investor that actually wants to find out what's true. Hmm. So that was uh, unattractive to me. And I realized I wanted to uh, really focus on, you know, dealing with the principal, the person whose money is actually get invested. And I wanted to sell Bitcoin to that person. And the, the worry that I had was, you know, this thing, at some point there will be millions of people selling this thing and thousands of companies selling this thing in all these different ways. And so how can you, what can you bring to the table that will let you build a big enough brand that your margins will be sustainable for mm -hmm. the long term? And it seemed to me from my own experience that, you know, 
education was the key and that there needed to be like really, really loud, noisy voices uh, promoting Bitcoin education and Bitcoin first and Bitcoin only to save people from, you know, four or five year shitcoin horseshoes mm-hmm. or at least make them much shorter. Right. And, you know, it was clear that there were some authors that were out and there were a couple of podcasts because 2018 was the Bitcoin standard uh, and the start of both TFTC, Tales from the Crypt, and Stefan Levera's podcast both started in 2018. Mm-hmm. So there's starting to be some really high quality stuff out there, but it was really in its infancy. And there wasn't a company that was set up that was like really specifically focused on that. Um, so I, I just thought, yeah, if you bundled the focus of the company would be like building great products for Bitcoiners and around Bitcoin with a heavy focus on education. Mm -hmm. You know, I thought that could be our marketing and that we would get a lot of organic reach and it would make customer acquisition really cheap. So you mentioned uh, a VC.com. That's actually the first time I read uh, that I could recall. First time I read about it was on Fred's blog back in the day. We both know a bunch of these VCs in the Valley. You've been in the space as well. It blows my mind that they're doing what they do, actually. Like, they're smart guys. I mean, they're very, very smart people. Why are our very smart Valley friends so confused? <laughs> Why are they so wrong on this? Um, no, I don't, I don't think they're necessarily confused. I think they're just... Giving them the benefit of the doubt that they're not acting with that, without integrity. <laughs> so so wh- why are they doing that? I think there's a bit of both. I mean, I think they're, it's really, really hard to see through this thing. It really is because the returns are just, there's never been an investment vertical for Silicon Valley that's got the uh, return profile better suited to their economics. It's so good. It's called short time to liquidity or short time to equity. You know, I think the acronym for that is SHTTE, which I believe is shitty. So short time to equity (laughs) or short time to exit. Sorry, short time to equity, short time to exit. So shitty VCs um, love that short time to exit. Um, where they can, you know, and, and when these things are just outside the reach of regulators at present, just mm-hmm. like online gambling was in the aughts, they can get away with it for now. And basically what it lets you do is you, you know, create your own security. You can pump the heck out of it, mm-hmm. uh, not following any of the rules that uh, actual securities industry participants have to follow. Like there are all kinds of rules about what you can and can't say about stocks and bonds and all kinds of different offerings, right? Um, but they can say whatever they want for now. They can pump this thing up like crazy and use these crazy telegram groups and Twitter promotions and like whatever else they want. Plus they can go nuts talking about the future of, you know, web three or whatever these things are supposed to do. Or, you know, they can take all their favorite articles about blockchain from 2017 and do a find and replace and put NFTs in there instead of blockchain and say, (laughs) it's going to do that, uh, which is basically what's going on for the most part. And, uh, and there's no one to hold them to account. And as long as they can pump the thing, enough to get out of their, you know, initial position plus some, and then a few of them actually like catch fire with retail and have like a longer story. It's just riskless. It's completely riskless for these guys because they're, they're selling it, you know, for like 20 X, uh, on the first, you know, sort of public sale versus what they invest in. So the VCs that I was around a lot in that first year in crypto 17, 18, uh, they all refer to it as we can make our own weather. And there's groups of them with, you know, they will be like 15 or just like, just like people are, you know, at the individual level with, with NFTs, they're stepping up each other's values and creating like a a price history for these things. So they they look, and then finally the, the chair stop or the, the music stops and they've 
dumped it on, you know, somebody who's not on the inside and doesn't realize that all those sales were actually a fake little cabal. Mm -hmm. It's like that with all these crypto projects too. Like these VC firms actually coordinate with each other and they step up each other's values. So like somebody will do the little seed round and then they'll convince somebody else to do the A round because they're going to flip around on the next project and do the horse trading. Venture capital in general is, yeah. I mean, this is what they've been doing. It's not. It very much is when it comes to crypto. It kind of is in the, in the and when you think about like what they've been doing in the in, in the series the seed round to the A to the B's and the C's they just keep stepping up mark the market and they keep raising larger funds for their two and twenties I mean they have to have exits yeah. at some point or it doesn't make any sense but the companies that they brought public pre- previously are just buying them up for them <laughs> so yeah yeah there there are a lot of there are a lot of similar dynamics and the board play, members right? in those companies right. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, some of the bigger firms ceased being venture firms for the most part a long, long time ago and are basically investment banks on the West Coast. I mean, the whole the whole talent pool is basically people that, you know, were in banking before or would have gone into banking before and they, you know, basically traded the blazer for Patagonia vest. Like it's the same guy though, right? It's the somebody from St. Grottlesax named Chad, whatever. <laughs> not not our Chad, their Chad. Not this Chad. <laughs> uh, not this Chad. Not this Chad. The other Chads. Um but uh you know, I mean, I think like, you know, I, I remember having my eyes open to this and like, it was probably like 2014 and it was, uh, I mean, I may have this wrong or it may be apocryphal or whatever, but at the end of the day, it's basically probably true. And if it wasn't this deal, a lot of them get done like this, but it's like a major firm will set the price of a round uh, at like a nice high fat number. But then they'll turn around and they will package a bunch of SPVs and go sell the deal, which they can do because now they're a principal, not an agent. So you don't have to be registered or whatever. And so they go and sell the SPVs. They're taking 20% of the SPVs plus a management fee. They get out of their cost basis, basically. So it's like risk-free by putting their label on it. And it's total total free call option. And they did this on all those names back then, right? This was the Pinterests and the Airbnbs and all this stuff. Like that's basically what happens. They're doing it now. And I, and I'm, listen, I'm friends with Peter Pham and, and Mike Jones, and I'm an LP, but they've recently, by way of being an LP in their fund at Science, I had exposure to um, Liquid Death. And I was like, I want to get some exposure directly. And so then they passed it to me and the others, and it was an SPV. And I'm like, Son, they, were, they were taking 0% management fee and 10% carry. But to your point, yeah. why wouldn't they take the carry? I mean, they have access. You can't get on the cap table without them. I did the deal anyway, but I was like, I just can't. Like, you're right. They're an investment bank in some ways. It's it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And then with the token stuff, you know, Andreessen took it much, much further and actually mm-hmm. got like a ton of their staff actually registered. So they are registered representatives wow. because these things probably are securities. They yeah. wanted that air cover for the fact that these and guys exposure. are actually repping, repping securities with all these crypto products. Sure. Very interesting. Um, okay. We talked about Swan. We kind of jumped ahead, but I would like to hear from the founder himself, 10 words sure. or less. Give me your high concept. How do you describe when you're walking around, shaking hands, talking on the phone with somebody? Yeah. Swan Bitcoin. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Swan is just the best place to buy Bitcoin, hands down. It's really what it is. We have the we have the best service, best education. It's just like the easiest way to get onboarded and and buy Bitcoin for yourself, for your company, for all kinds of like various complicated trust and IRA structures. So and then you kind of said this as you were telling me about the story, and I want to interrupt you, but um, I have this very simple acronym for my investment thesis I told you about, which is differentiation, scalability, defensibility. So go through those very quickly. How, how, how at the time of founding it, was it differentiated? Mm-hmm. And then there's a little twist to that because you found out later some other things. So t- talk about that. Yeah. So I really thought that we could um, establish ourselves as a trusted voice on Bitcoin 
and that that would lead to a massive referral engine of people knowing that they could trust us not to steer their friends, family, colleagues, social network astray, right? Because you can't trust Coinbase. You know, buying and holding Bitcoin is like the number 14 thing you can do as you go down on their homepage to the different things that they are trying to get you to do. They want you to learn about, you know, shitcoin number 84, you know, and, and compensate you in shitcoins for that or whatever. Like they're just really trying to wreck you. Um, and so if you're the trusted recommendation of Bitcoiners, you should start with that concentric circle and then like build an army of people that that uh, that feel like they're part of Swan and, and feel you know, like they want to recommend what has served them very well. So the differentiation was solely focusing on Bitcoin and educating on Bitcoin. And and by way Absolutely. of doing that, that's the scale scale plan as well. Exactly. Yeah. Because if you're going to earn the trust, you've got to put out the content. And if you're putting out the content, then you have organic reach over yep. time. And, you know, our email list reach is like over 350,000. Wow. We have millions of Twitter followers across us and our, you know, advisors and people who can tweet for us, stuff like mm -hmm. that. So, And then- once you do that, how has it become defensible in the long term? Tell me the defensibility of the product over time in the business. Yeah. So I think about it in a couple of ways. So one with the great brand and the great service and, you know, the fees being such a small percentage of the total purchase, like it's just, it's not that big a deal if you get great service and the fees are, I mean, even if they were double at 2%, which is like where most, most cash apps purchases are Coinbase yeah. app, like if it's a good experience and they like it, they're not like that incentivized to move away. You can dangle lower fees than what we have, like 0.99% mm -hmm. and basically sell unprofitably, um, you know, because it costs money to onboard users and you lose some to fraud and all this other stuff. But one of my questions actually on here, and I was going to get to it in a few minutes is um, the 0% trade commissions as they have at these large brokerages. We've talked about this privately. So, yeah. you know, a few months ago. Um, Coinbase and the S1 filings want to read something to you. It says, since inception through December 31st, 2020, um, they generated it says we, but we generated over $3.4 billion in total revenue, largely from transaction fees that we earn from volume-based trades on our platform by retail users and institutions. And for the year ended, December 31st, 2020, transaction revenue represented 96% of our net revenue. So my question, because you're running a large brokerage, right? So my question for you and Kraken and, um, uh, and Coinbase and others like your companies is eventually Fidelity and Schwab and all of them are going to allow people to buy, sell, and hold Bitcoin, right? Um, if those aren't already doing them, some of them are like, you know, Robin mm -hmm. and stuff. If they go to 0% commissions, how does that impact your business in the future? And will you just introduce other product lines to substitute the loss of revenue if you have to compete? It's very doubtful that they'll allow you to hold Bitcoin. Okay. They'll probably give you an IOU. Okay. So yeah. I think with us having, having you know, we make it extremely easy to withdraw to self-custody or to multi-sig. It's free yeah. withdrawals, no charge there, and tons of education teaching people how to do it. We have a, you know, a company goal of zero sats under custody, which is completely counter to the traditional mm -hmm. financial AUM model. Um, and I think we're the only Bitcoin seller that basically has that goal. You know, the, yeah. the other ones are all kind of trying to, We're trying to make money on custody. custody fees. Yeah. Well, the custody fees, but like just kind of the, that relationship and kind of having the lock in and trying to cross sell them other stuff. Sure. But yeah, I mean, you, you see a lot of nickel and diming, like you may have like a headline of, you know, this low fee sale or whatever, but then there's like this monthly fee and then mm -hmm. there's this withdrawal fee and then you're paying network fees and <laughs> oh, another monthly fee for premium exactly. support, which just means having support, which of course is free at Swan. So there's all these other ways that people will kind of nickel and dime you if they dangle the loss leader 
of the Bitcoin sales. At the end of the day, again, I think for the next decade, so like, let's just call it now through 2030, I think that, uh, I think that, you know, 99 BIPs is sustainable. And mm -hmm. if you have great service and great education and people trust you, I think they uh, have no problem, you know, letting you exist as a business and giving you that. Let me just, let me swing away back to Bitcoin for one second. We can go back into Swan because I had a question here that I didn't get to. Um, a lot of our friends in Bitcoin, American Hobble being one of them, Preston Pitch, others, they're 100%. Every asset they own is in Bitcoin. I'm not there. I, I don't I do not do that. Um, but I'm a Bitcoin max. And when it comes to a cryptocurrency, I would never buy anything else. We were just talking about this before in a Telegram chat I got pulled in today. And I'm like, yeah, I'm all Bitcoin. What are you guys talking about? Um, what's your allocation? Obviously, you're 100% Bitcoin as it relates to any crypto. Do you have 100% of Bitcoin in everything? Do you own a house? Do you have stocks? Do you have any other assets? Or do you, are you all in on Bitcoin? I don't actually talk about this stuff. Um, I can give uh, a little bit of color, though, which is uh, my my wife is from a culture where uh, a little bit of uh, downside protection <laughs> is appreciated and a happy wife leads to happy life. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, there's it. Obviously, I'm way overweight like dramatically so yep. versus any normie and you know i've got iras still in gbtc waiting for that freaking premium to come back to oh my god it's awesome <laughs> or at least the discount <laughs> to go away or whatever yeah, and, yeah. you know i've got I, I don't think i have any any old 401ks that aren't 100 percent bitcoin iras at this point um but yeah i mean i also i guess the other way that i'm kind of diversified is i just have um you know, I have stake in so many of these startups from over the years, not only my own, but, you know, I've got stake in like 50 startups and I've had like 14 or 15 exits, but a lot of them are still probably half the rest are still alive from the last mm -hmm. eight years. So there's a lot of paper wealth there. And, yeah. you know, every once in a while you'll see me tweet that I smashed some Bitcoin and people are like, well, yeah. where'd you get the money? Aren't you on a startup salary? I'm like, bro, I did own some other things. Like sometimes that stuff hits. So. Uh, yeah, I mean, 2021, like my, my view into what's going on in public markets has been basically through my own lens, which is just watching. I had more exits in 2021 mm -hmm. than my entire life previously. Like that just tells you how freaking frothy it is. That's what happens about eight, 10 years after you've made investments. <laughs> they start to come to fruition. That, but also it's really frothy. A lot of it was very opportunistic just because the markets were just so hot this year, like so overheated uh, coming out of you know, the worst of COVID, it was just like absolutely bananas. Everybody was acquiring and everybody was exiting. So. All right. I want to, I want to, I want to ask you, uh, you, you mentioned something before we started Mac Jones, pretty dope. The Patriots quarterback used Swan. Why don't you tell the story about Pet Mac yep. Jones? I don't want to steal the thunder. Tell us about that. That's amazing. Yeah, it's, it is pretty dope. So yeah, Mac Jones, the uh, quarterback of the new England Patriots, rookie quarterback, uh, university, Alabama, Alabama grad, uh, okay. So cool things about this guy. He sounds like a Bitcoiner to me. I'm looking forward. Hopefully through this, we get to, uh, actually talk at some point. So Mac hit me up, uh, Corey at swanbitcoin.com. If you see this, um, you know, Jay was a quarterback. You guys should hang out too. <laughs> I was a linebacker. <laughs> he wouldn't like me. <laughs> oh, you were, you were a linebacker. Well, he won't sack you anyway. Um, so, uh, so he was like a 4.0 GPA econ major at Alabama and supposedly has a photographic memory. So, uh, you know, that's, that's pretty cool. Um, but yeah, he's been getting into Bitcoin a lot. He's been following it for a while. He's been reading up and, uh, yeah, he was looking for a way to, you know, every holiday 
a lot of uh, the quarterbacks in the NFL will give a gift to their entire offensive line. So it'll be like every, every O lineman gets a Rolex or, Mm -hmm. you know, I think Russell Wilson was famous for giving $12,000 of uh, Amazon stock to each of his O linemen a few years ago, stuff like that. So uh, Mac decided that he wanted to give Bitcoin to each member of his offensive line. So cool. And, uh, and he also wanted to do it in kind of like a nice, like unifying, like, Hey, we're all we're all homies here. So he decided to take one Bitcoin and split it into uh, one thirteenth each, and uh, he gets one, and and each of the other ones gets uh, gets one thirteenth of a Bitcoin. And uh, I think he hit up Dave Bailey, who's a, a Alabama grad over at Magazine, and he and Mike Germano, the publisher over there, suggested uh, that they use Swan for it. And I think what's cool about it is, you know, we started Swan Private Client Sales back in January. So it's been, you know, this this whole year, it's been an operation. It's a big team now. It's, you know, Stefan Lavera, Terrence Yang, Stephen Lubka, Ryan Flynn, and, um, oh, man, <laughs> Alex Stanzik, who you see on uh, Bitcoin Breakfast Club on Spaces every day. So that, that squad is pretty awesome. we got a new one joining. So what's awesome is, like, we could send these guys, like, a nice gift box with a dope metal black card that has their name and their uniform number on it. And on the back, it's like, so cool. this is your Bitcoin guy. And it actually has, like, one of our you know, private client sales reps and their phone number. And that's how they're claiming the gift is like calling them, getting walked through, handheld exactly how to set up the account and getting the Bitcoin from Mac right there in their account. And you guys are walking them through the cold storage process as well so they can learn how to do all that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, everything that's purchased on Swan is initially custodied uh, mm-hmm. in a trust account with yeah. uh, with Prime Trust. And then, yeah, we basically get to work with the education and, and teach them about self-custody. And that all comes in the onboarding flow and in the first conversations that they have so they can take self-custody if they choose to. I want to ask you about Clubhouse, right? So I met you on Clubhouse. Hold on, hold on. I just have to say, I mean... I always wanted to like write for SI or when I was a kid, I wanted to be like in Sports Illustrated because they'd like write about me or something. My name still has not appeared in the magazine, but my company's name was on the website this morning. So that was pretty dope that uh, Sports Illustrated covered it. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah. All right. So I, I, want to, I want to talk about Clubhouse for a second. So I met you on Clubhouse earlier this year. I think it was January or so. Um, mm-hmm. Cape Friends. Um listen to you and but you really have been on a lot you're running a company um and i didn't realize for the first few months that cafe bitcoin was something that you actually created that club right mm-hmm. um so why don't you kind of tell us how why and who for the you know on on the clubhouse strategy um and why cafe bitcoin why not just call it swan bitcoin like why did you call it cafe bitcoin yeah so the origin story there is i think i was vaguely aware of clubhouse you know because i was seeing news stories sometimes about you know some you know, racial flare up or people sharing something out of pocket that a VC said in supposedly private room. So I was kind of like aware that it was there. And like, I probably would have joined if somebody gave me an invite, but I wasn't like chasing it or anything. And then I guess they kind of opened the roles and let a bunch of people in through, you know, five invites for every member in around Christmas. And a Bitcoiner uh, was basically horrified by all the rooms that had Bitcoin in the title and we're really actually shilling shit coins in it. And so he hit me up kind of frantically on Christmas or the day after or something last year and, uh, and said, we need more Bitcoiners on here. Like we gotta, we gotta do this. We gotta stop this misinformation campaign. And it was in, you know, it was kind of frantic, right? Cause it was the new all time high it was 10 days mm-hmm. before on the 16th of December, everybody was talking and, and the crypto people on clubhouse, it being started by, you know, Silicon Valley folks and funded by Andreessen Horowitz. Like it was just a absolute shit coin fest, right? Um, tons of misinformation and lies about Bitcoin. And so he was like, just tapped me off the bench and said, can you help? So I had these five invites and, you know, I was like, 
you know, it, it was troubling when I went in and I saw it and it was really bad. And so instead of just like using my five invites and calling it done, I decided to uh, coordinate basically like an invite tree and get every Bitcoiner on Clubhouse as fast as possible. These are mostly Bitcoin Twitter p- folks that came over with you, right? And, and Bitcoin Telegram people, like just yeah. and all the founders and the authors and the podcasters and basically anybody and everybody that we could grab and put on there. And, and I will say it was a magical time from January to April, May, I think, as it was yeah. moving up. Andreas, and Andreas Antonopoulos and Max Kaiser and Jimmy Song and like all these influential people, Michael Saylor, everybody was coming on at some point, came through the Swan Bitcoin rooms. Um, so it, it was pretty interesting. It hasn't really continued that way, I think, because it gets old to say the same things over and over again. But, but it was really interesting in the beginning. No, it really was. And I think it was, it was definitely partially driven by the... Uh, the run up in the price, I think, mm-hmm. drives a lot more activity there. So when you see, like, when the price pumped this fall, all the clubhouse rooms were back over a thousand, mm-hmm. you know, every day and stuff like that. So yeah. it's it's a lot of it is just driven by what people are interested in at the time. Um, but yeah, again, the a bunch of companies were involved. It was deliberately like, I mean, it was just me who started it, but a bunch of people were admins for it, and you know, I I spend a lot of time thinking about branding. And the right names for things, and people had all kinds of names for this. It was like, you know, give me some of the stuff that didn't make the cut. What's what's on the cutting floor? <laughs> what are some names? I mean, Bitcoin Cafe isn't right because that makes you think of like an actual physical location. Uh, you know, anything about Rabbit Hole is just too insidery. Like mm. anything that was, you know, like daily Bitcoin is like sounds too much like news. So I always think about like it takes me a long time to name things. And I usually require, you know, three or four. I'm usually bad at that. And I change before. it a couple years later. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. I usually think about it for a long time. Um, in Cafe Bitcoin, I wanted it to have the uh, the international feel, the drop-in vibe, the fact that you could be there all day if you wanted to, the fact that you could talk to people if you wanted to, or you could sit quietly or just listen, that kind of thing and just chill. Um, and I just love, I love the whole I like cafe anything. I love cafe society and like that whole like, you know, Paris 1920s vibe is really cool to me. Um, so yeah, just, it meant something to me and I thought it would travel well and that it would, it would work for what we did. It's a huge Facebook group too. There's a cafe Bitcoin Facebook group, which, you know, I don't spend any time on, but Quidim and some of the other guys, uh, and gals, uh, will just manage that and admin that. And that's pretty active. Well, then you do spaces too now, right? So you're also doing spaces now because you've brought me into a couple of those. Yeah. 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 Just spaces. Yeah. But again, it was like- What do you think between spaces and, and Clubhouse now? Like they're, they're clearly different, right? Different vibes, right? Would you say? Yeah. They are different. Um, Clubhouse, it's easier to just kind of hang out and, because more people can be on stage and it's more accepted to not be paying attention necessarily. Right. Or to not, you know, because nobody kind of summons you and asks you things. Mm-hmm. I think spaces, because of the limited number of people you can have on stage and the bar being a little bit higher for delivering quality product, maybe. Um, I think that's probably a little bit of the difference. So I feel yeah. like it's harder for me to jump on spaces without committing a certain amount of time and saying like, hey, I'm definitely going to be here. Yeah. Um, whereas Clubhouse, like I don't mind being on stage and, you know, putting my phone down and, you know, nobody's going to be mad at me Just listening. when mm-hmm. I come back from like, you know changing my daughter's clothes or something like that. And then coming back, like nobody's going to be yelling at me or feeling like I'm stealing the thunder or stealing a stage spot, I guess. I think a lot of the dynamic just comes down to the limited spots on stage for, uh, for spaces. Um, but I think they do it very on purpose because that constraint forces Signal versus quality. Noise. Yeah. Kind of. Yeah. 
Yeah, I like I like emojis on uh, spaces. It's cool. It's a nice way to participate. Uh, they need a simple thumbs up because I don't always want to. I feel fist bump is kind of weird and culture appropriation ish. You could do it on Facebook, and they, they they float up like they used to do on um, what was the Twitter product that they had? Yeah, it's kind of like just floating up. Periscope, had periscope, that. yeah, same idea. But they're off to the side, you kind of just you could tell if when you're talking because on Spaces you, you'd have to scroll through the audience to see it happening on their their avatars, which you're not going to. So do. you don't see it. Nobody's yeah. going to see that. Smart yeah. how Facebook did that. Yeah, that is. Yeah, so there's lots of little product tweaks and things that can make them both better. But they're both good products, and you know, no two products are exactly the same. Mm-hmm. Really, like they all. You know, PMs and engineers end up making a ton of little decisions over time, as you know, where you end up with differentiation. And there's no way there's one winner for audio social networking. It's silly. There will be more. There's. I thought in like April that that Clubhouse was going to be the thing, you know. And I thought the same thing about um, Snapchat until Facebook, Instagram copied it, and you realize yeah. quickly what's well, a feature, right? Like, you know, they can make it into a, an overall platform, which they're trying to do, but um, they came out so fast and gangbusters and Clubhouse is like, wow, this thing's gonna be a runaway train. And it just, it slowed down. It did, but you know, certain little tweaks can, can change it and put it on another upward trajectory. And sometimes it can take years. I mean, what did Snapchat stock went up like nine X in the last year or something like that? After all this, are you kidding me? Yeah. I went in pre IPO on that. We sold it after, because as soon as they copied it, the TechCrunch article came out the day, I called up all these like secondary brokers, get me out of this thing. <laughs> the fuck, you know, I was like, get me out now. That was stupid. It's gone up like tremendously since that time. And it was like, I don't know, you know, you know, and they're innovating and they've got fans and they figured out other markets and all this other stuff. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I think that, uh, you know, there's, more than enough differentiation in clubhouse and a team focused on just that and not a bunch of other stuff is generally going to out innovate a company that just has a project team working for RSUs or something like that yeah. usually. Um, so I think that they'll probably be just fine. I would have been thrilled to invest at a billion dollar valuation. I'd probably be happy. You know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I never, I never sell Bitcoin for this stuff, but like, I'd be happy to take some like, a grant in that company at 10 million versus like an equivalent grant in Twitter. Let's just say that. Yeah. I mean, the way I look at it is um, I've talked about this with you, I think, and, and HODL and some other people because HODL's like, nothing's going to outperform Bitcoin. I go, that's not true. Early stage technology companies are starting at like your, your company when it started a few years ago, right? It's very small. Yeah. It's a lot of small numbers. That's just how it is. Exactly. You're going to have a high, I mean, you have to succeed, right? So if you're good at picking those and you look like you've been in your career because you've had, you have a good portfolio as well. Um, you're probably going to outperform Bitcoin if you're good at that. I wouldn't suggest people trying to do this because you have to have access. And if you don't have the access, you're going to start making bets on things that you get access yeah. to and things you can't get access to, you can't get. And you, you end up having a shitty, you know, you have shitty returns over time. Yeah. I mean, it would have been basically impossible to outperform Bitcoin in the first decade. But, you know, from here, law of large numbers, I mean. That's totally true. But you wouldn't have got in in the first year or two, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. But yeah, I mean, from... You know, Bitcoin, if you got in at a thousand and it's 50,000 today, like it's not uncommon to have, you know, hundred X's in startup land, but you know, you're going to have some zeros too. Yeah. I mean, the best one I ever had was like a thousand plus X. And then after the dilution, because you get the dilution, once you find on the exit, there's like options and accruing dividends and all kinds of stuff that ends up happening. Warrants from their, from Silicon Valley Bank. And and it's like, ends up being like a 400 X. That's amazing. Right. I mean, so I'll take it, you know, Um, but you have a bunch that go to zero as well. So when you average it all out, Bitcoin probably still beats it at the hottest point. Um, Oh, for sure. 
I think it's, it's again, and that's all super risky and requires a lot of expertise. And, you know, if you already understand Bitcoin, there's no more expertise required. And yeah. so like, it's the best risk reward asset that's ever been available, widely available to the whole oh, population. Like it's just, it's just the best investment that's ever existed. I want to flip over to inflation. Um, I want to talk about inflation just briefly. Um, I know you're, you said your wife is from Turkey, right? So yep. you, you kind of have some, some ties to there and, and, and to that country and understanding inflation and how things can go awry. And like, we're seeing some, it's not hyperinflation, but we're seeing some, some, some sustained inflation right now. What do you think about what's going on with inflation right now and where we're going? If you print money, there will be inflation. It's just a matter of where it shows up. It's how it works. You know, we just, and it's a question of like, will it show up in the CPI in the US or not? Mm -hmm. It may show up overseas. It may show up in asset prices in the US. Um, it's also showing up in the price of goods in the US, which should tell you, because they'd really rather it not. So they're if doing they everything hide they, it, they can would. not make it. <laughs> if they can hide it, they would, and they can't hide it. So it should tell you what's really going on. Um, but yeah, in, in Turkey, you know, the first time that I went over there, uh, you know, was that summer of 2010 after meeting my wife in 2009. And I think the lira was 1.8 to the dollar. Uh, last week it got up to 18, 18 lira per dollar. Uh, and you know, all like it doubled in the last, you know, 33 days or something like that. They've just essentially mortgaged their future to guarantee returns for lira investors, basically saying like, we'll make you whole. Uh, by giving you some other stuff on top of it, if 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 the lira devalues over the rate of inflation or something like that, so it plummeted. So now it's like ten or eleven versus the dollar, uh, and it did that just violently. And even that is like scary. Like if it can go down that much, can it go back up by as mm -hmm. much? Like what what is going on here? So it's just like having this volatile currency and all that just weird stuff that does in the economy at the micro level, which I have you know some insight to just you know, talking to friends that I've made and that were my wife's friends over the years and they're, you know, our social circle, like you're seeing what's happening. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, it's extremely disruptive. It is, uh, you know, it, it weakens people's faith in, in the system that they're living under and that they're part of, uh, it's dangerous for politicians. And when politicians get cornered, uh, they often do wild things. And, you know, it kind of made me, kind of made me think like, what if the Venezuelan dictator uh, really did have good intentions, but then he like mortgaged the future and his currency went to crap. And, you know, he knew it, it may have been, you, you could actually just describe like the best of intentions to the guy. Right. And you could say like, maybe he really did want the best for his country, but to do that, he had to pay off all these different people, you know, and cut all these side deals to get them on board with his agenda and then when the currency goes to crap and you can't pay for anything anymore and you realize, oh my God, if I lose power, I actually did all this stuff that I meant with the best of intentions at the time because I had this shining path for my country and my people. But all that stuff is actually technically kind of illegal and I've implicated <laughs> myself and a bunch of other people. And so actually, shoot, if I want to stay out of jail or not be killed, I actually have to keep power. <laughs> oh no, now I'm a dictator. <laughs> Right. But that's basically, you know, the, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And, you know, there's a lot of that going on with Erdogan, you know, like he's, he's done a lot of, you know, he's done some good things for Turkey and his politics are, you know, not really mine generally, but 
you know, he, he obviously railroaded the country into a more or less like leaving him in power forever. It's been 18 years now and it was supposed to be like six. Um, and you know, he mortgaged the future and he sold off a ton of their assets. Uh, and you know, and now he's recognized the very last thing is that Turkey is actually not particularly levered up. So their debt to GDP ratio is only like 39%. So they actually like the country doesn't owe much money the way the U S does or Japan does. Um, and so he's basically promised that he'll borrow in, you know, dollars, euro, yuan, like whatever he had rubles, whatever to make these foreign investors whole, uh, to make up for what they may lose with further lira devaluations and that's bringing flows back into the country so he's just gonna essentially mortgage the future and play the us's playbook it's funny we're so far out ahead of what they're playing you you actually had a uh, i was listening to the dennis podcast with you and dennis on uh, last week and it said um you, your quote was you only have to look at food for referring to inflation and i think you kind of said that in a different way 100 percent. i mean they can't even hide the food right at this point so you know they're trying to. They keep changing the basket over the years. Yeah. If you look at the 1981 basket versus now, it's like 15% versus 6%. So the 6% has got to be significantly higher, right? As we said, it's 15%. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're lying to us and they can't even hide that in 6%, right? That's what's that's what's crazy. Right. Um, but that's what the people need to do. Just look at your food, right? That's when you know this is totally off the rails, like at that point. Oh, you know? yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's super crazy. clear. I, you know, another thing I was, I had uh, BJ on recently and he was talking, we were walking through the bullish case of Bitcoin book and his, his thesis on it. it yeah, there it is. <laughs> That's right. I have yeah, signed copy number 256. Awesome, man. <laughs> um, we talk, one thing I like about VJ is that he, he's, he's very pragmatic, but he also lists what he believes are potential risks to Bitcoin. And the only risk that I think is a real credible potential risk in, in terms of like that, that I could see possibly playing out low probability, but the only thing is the federal reserve, right? I think it's the only risk to Bitcoin. It's also the reason why Bitcoin was born, right? I mean, exactly why he created it was the whole money printer, you know, um, and ha- trying to get back to sound money with Bitcoin. Um, but because of the Fed, they they're the reason why it's 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 going parabolic, right? Because they keep doing what they're doing, and uh, they keep doubling and tripling and quadrupling down on on their on their policy. Um, so I'm just curious. Do you think I firmly Fed, disagree? By the way, okay, yeah, I just want to ask you. So so yeah, let's go through this, right? Because yeah. I think that my thesis is that you know Bitcoin is is growing the way it is because of people like Michael Seller that are bringing the most money into it, right? And so that pushes mm-hmm. number go up, right? The NGU technology yeah. we can talk about. I don't think he would be doing that if he had an alternative. As Tina would say, there is an alternative. That is true. But if there were an alternative, would Michael Saylor have found Bitcoin or he'd been dismissive from Eric's pushes and nudges over the years and be like, well, I could just buy these, you know? Yeah. I mean, there's nothing outside the system. Bitcoin yeah. is the only thing outside the system. It's the only outside. Right. Money. Right. Yeah. It's the only thing outside the system. Literally everything else is inside the system. Every altcoin, gold, the dollar, mm-hmm. all fiat currencies, they're all inside the system. So the only thing that you can buy that's outside the system is Bitcoin. So that's, it's the hardest asset ever. Right. So, Mm -hmm. um, and it's not controlled by anybody, but yeah, I mean, all, all this stuff, these short-term narratives, but what he, he wasn't, I don't think, but but hold on, let me take a step back. Cause I've heard Michael on many hours of interviews and stuff, talk about this and I could have misunderstood him. My understanding was he, he was in Bitcoin because of the inflation issue that he was seeing that was about Mm -hmm. to happen. Right. Mm -hmm. And so he couldn't find anything that would in terms of the risk reward profile that that made any more that made any sense right so he bought bitcoin as a hedge against the inflation that was coming that was going to ensue 
Um, if there was an alternative, maybe he would have bought that, something that was more comfortable that had more established history, but he couldn't. There was nothing else, right? Yeah, because there is nothing else because the the foundational layer that denominates all of these assets is the dollar, mm-hmm. right? And we're on a U.S. Treasury standard, basically, globally. Um, and we can print as many more of those as we want to whenever we want. And you can't trust anybody to hold to any sort of like firm monetary policy for any particular length of time. Like it's just not credible. Um, but yeah, I mean, and just in general, you know, it's useful to trot these things out that help people understand what it mm-hmm. is. But at the end of the day, like we as humans now have the best money that we've ever had. We have the first real money. Everything else is basically an approximation of money. It's like a shadow of what money can be. And we have the perfect form now, right? In platonic sense, we have the perfect form of money. Um, and when it came out was convenient for marketing because it came out in the middle of the global financial crisis, but it wouldn't have mattered. What do you mean when, when it came, what is the, it came out? You when Bitcoin it. came out, like it was announced in 2008 and the network launched in 2009. And we look at it as like, and we always talk about it being a response to the GFC or whatever. And it's not. Wasn't it a response to, it wasn't. No, it would have been, it would have been released as soon as it was done, whenever it was figured out. Right. But he, he, he started this in 2008 when we were going through a recession and they were doing bailouts. No, he might've started in 2002. I don't know when he started it. Okay. I don't know when he started working on it, but you would have released eCash whenever you actually cracked the code and like figured out how to do it. So it wasn't, so the mother of, you know, they say necessity is the mother of invention. You don't think it was born out of necessity and that was the mother to the invention of it? No, it was, it was an, it was an innovation that people had been working on for 36 years or longer. What were they trying to solve for when they were coming up with the idea though? The Byzantine general's problem. Okay. So it was just purely from a technical perspective. They weren't thinking about it. Yeah. Once you solve that and you unleash that on the world, it's a technology growth story. Yeah. So it's weird because it's a technology growth story that happens to be money. This is like what Bram was saying to me, actually. It was really interesting because his his perspective was very similar to what you're saying. He comes from a very tech, but he's stuck on the technology mm-hmm. part of it, not the monetary value of it. You know, he's, he's, he's stuck in the tech part of it, which I think that's where it was probably born out of. And we realize now it's solving some other greater purpose. And, and I, don't, I think he kind of just gets stuck in the tech, you know? And I have all respect in the world for what he's done. I'm not, I'm not taking anything away from Bram. I mean, he's a brilliant individual, but uh, you know, I just was like, I, I don't understand why he can't see the, the monetary value of this at this point. You know, Lots of people miss it. They're just like, they're talking to who they talk to and they have their frame of reference and it leads them astray. Um, you know, there's lots of, lots of people that have liked Bitcoin that don't understand it. I'm still trying to figure it out. <laughs> so I do the interview. We all are. Nobody can understand it completely because it changes and it's, and it's alive, right? And it, it changes based on what we do with it. It yeah. interacts with the social layer. So, so wait, hold on. So, 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 so let's go back to the tapering and then, the, and, and then their announcement that they're going to try okay. to raise rates next year. Let's go there. Do you, do you think they're going to do that? Do you think they're actually going to get to the point where they can actually raise some rates? I have no idea, man. You know me. You know me. I'm like, don't try to predict the future. I don't, I don't like false narratives. I don't like false prophets. So um, people saying they know exactly what's going to happen. We kind of know what happened last time they tried to raise rates and mm-hmm. the economy kind of choked and wouldn't have it. It was late, late 2018, I think was the last like big hiccup. Yeah. Um, you know, and then we shall see. I mean, there's an old saying, right? Don't don't fight the Fed, right? And and it seems like the, the I'm not saying not to be in Bitcoin, by the way. It's very clear to people listening to this. You should still buy Bitcoin. This is a short term issue that I'm talking about. This is a time preference issue, right? High time preference. So, um, no matter what happens, eventually the pristine asset will prevail, right? Just like last year, it crashes and then it comes back with a vengeance. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that we're in the flat part of an S 
technology adoption curve with Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. And this is this is both number of people and you know the value flowing into the protocol. They're both on the flat part of the curve. We haven't even started to go up the the steep part of the S curve with people who actually understand Bitcoin and have like a lot of their net worth in Bitcoin, which is what most of us will in the future. And we haven't started to go up that, you know, their money moving in. So, you know, that is a totally different cycle than these short-term fluctuations in policy of one country or whatever. You know, all kinds of things can happen that have more or less effect than what we happen to be talking about right now. You know, that could be step change in adoption. That could be, you know, a country choosing to like a big country choosing to make Bitcoin legal tender or a much bigger company than MicroStrategy jumping in and putting Bitcoin on their balance sheet in a major way, mm-hmm. tens of billions of dollars or something like that. There's so many different things that can come out of left field that can completely change the game. Some kind of technological innovation, some major company deciding to get, you know, hardcore into Bitcoin um, as a payments technology and just like, you know, my, my general thesis of like Bitcoin being a widely used medium of exchange, you know, by 2028 or something like that. What if that gets pulled forward like four or five years because somebody actually figures out, you know, how to do with minimal tax implications, like micro lending against a Bitcoin balance that lets you spend fiat, you know, right there with a credit card. And so you can actually do this, like get on zero thing Mm. that, that, you know, level wants to see or something like that. MasterCard has something in the works with that. Visa has something in the works with that. Like Fold is launching something like getting all these calls and talking about this stuff. Like, you know, it, it could be, it could be faster. We don't know. I know you don't like to predict things, but my question for you is by 2030, what do you think the price of Bitcoin will be? Uh, I wrote an article that included, no, I don't think I didn't actually write an article about that, but um, no, I mean, I think I, I just, uh, I'll stick to what I've been saying, which Mm -hmm. is like, you know, for my own personal family planning and like thinking about, you know, my company's finances and stuff like that. Mm. I think it's really conservative to say like, you know, 90% plus chance of the Bitcoin price hitting a million dollars a coin by the end of the decade. Yeah. Like that's like a 20 X and that's, we did 20 X. We did 20 X in three years. Yeah. I mean, this leads me to the stock to flow thing. So you've obviously been vocal about the, saying the math doesn't add up. Jimmy Song, who's obviously a core developer, pretty respected in this space, is like, well, let's just say a playoff for the end of the year. Listen, bro, we're at the end of the year. <laughs> I don't think it happened. Um, walk me through how you believe it'll be there to that point in the future um, or somewhere around that point to the future. Um, and it just seems obvious to me there's going to be more buyers and more demand over time and the supply is limited. Mm-hmm. So it is sort of a stock to flowish kind of thing, but it's not so predictive essentially. Yeah. I mean, it's not, it's, it's actually just about the stock, not the flow. Okay. It's that there can only ever be 21 million Bitcoins and there's a global race for this. And there's an this increasing like, amount of demand, right? Yeah. This is why like Sailor, somebody who thinks about this stuff deeply, just laughs it out of the room. And this is why you have like ineffective pitches to hedge fund managers or money managers or anybody that actually understands math and stats. If you bring stock to flow to the table, like stock to flow models, you just get laughed out of the room. I have like hundreds of anecdotes of this in my DMs and emails from the last couple of years. But at the end of the day, it was just like bad statistics and bad modeling. It was just set up wrong and it was just invalid from the jump. So you didn't have to wait, you know, two years to see it not play out. It was never, it was never a valid model. Anyway, so that's that. Um, you know, as far as like just, there's just so much money out there. 
And, you know, when I usually talk about price, I'm always talking about in present day dollars. So like 2021 dollars. Mm -hmm. So if I'm saying like a million dollars of purchasing power, I'm talking about 2021 purchasing power. So, you know, maybe double that. And, you know, if, if, if the dollar deflates by another 50% over the next decade or something like that, I'd be thinking about like $2 million in nominal, but a million dollars in 2021 purchasing power. Um, so I think that's probably a helpful, a helpful way to think about, uh, where I think we're going, but you know, it's just going to require a lot more of the mind virus spreading and it'll spread through companies and individuals. And, you know, it is a monetary protocol. So while it is very important, you know, in the sense of like, let's get everybody that we can on the arc, the number of people is very important because, you know, the more people, the more rich people, the more companies, the more people in treasury department making those decisions. But at the end of the day, it is the assets. It's the, it's the purchasing power and the value Mm -hmm flowing into the protocol that makes number go up. Um, and I'll credit, you know, um, Rob Breedlove always talks about this and like, you know, just points out like, Hey, it really is about the value flowing into the protocol, not just, not just the number of Bitcoiners. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons that he focuses so much on, on wealthy people. Cause he's just trying to orange pill the rich people. Yeah. I'm just Googled it right now. It's like, I just want to read this to them. So while the richest 10% of adults in the world own 85% of the global household, household wealth, the bottom half collectively barely own 1%. So it's really not about, for number go up, it's not really about the number of people going in. It's about the wealthy people going in and the institutions. It's over over time, which will happen, you know, over time. Yeah, yeah. And then that will actually be better and fairer for everybody because you'll actually, you know, then even the bottom, you know, 50% that don't get a lot of that asset because they can't afford it today to get much. Uh, they'll still get paid in hard money and the systems that they're part of and the governments that they're working under will be on balance significantly less tyrannical and less able to operate with essentially like stolen funds from the populace because they'll all be held to a Bitcoin standard. Well, first of all, do you believe in hyper-Bitcoinization at some point? When do you think something like that could happen? Do you think it'll happen in your lifetime? And I'm just curious because I always try to like kind of... um, game theory this out a little bit like how do you how do you see that transition happening so this i do have kind of an article out there it was kind of the new updated mission statement or at least path forward for swan and what i'm working on i put it in coindesk Um, but it was basically the conceit was what will the world look like in 2035 and what will it look like in 2050 so kind of like 15 years out 30 years out and you know that that visual that we've all seen of the you know progression of an asset from you know store of value which were early in that to medium of exchange, widely used medium of exchange into unit of account, I think is a good way to think about it. Mm-hmm. I've been thinking a lot about you got to hold Bitcoin for like the better part of a decade to have it become like 90% plus of your net worth, mm-hmm. both because it appreciates, but also because the more time you're around Bitcoin, the more you put into the Bitcoin protocol. Right. So like, I'm still a new Bitcoiner. Like I haven't even like graduated into Bitcoin or dumb essentially because I'm like, you know, four and a half years in. And, you know, I feel like I'm not at that eight year, nine year mark yet. And the only people that other than the tinkerers and people that have like very specific use cases, you're not going to be spending much Bitcoin until you have nothing else to spend. And so that requires you to get to that point where it's like 90% plus of what you could spend has to be Bitcoin. And I think that, you know, spending of Bitcoin where it becomes a widely used medium of exchange needs a much bigger cohort to get through that eight to 10 year time frame. I think the 2017 cohort was probably big enough where, 
they'll drive a lot more product innovation and a lot more spending of Bitcoin. And then you'll get merchant adoption because if somebody wants to pay in Bitcoin, you know, they'll, they'll gladly accept it or whatever. Mm. Um, so my guess is, you know, probably 2025 to 2027 was my theory heading into focusing on a store of value company or at least for store of value products first and medium of exchange later. Um, but I also could be wrong and it might actually be the, you know, 2020, 2021 cohort that needs to mature to like 2028, 2030 or something like that before they're really spending it. And then for, you know, this idea of having products and services, you know, available, uh, you know, priced in sats, most places around the world for most things that you might want to buy, not exclusively, but, you know, also on the price tag or in the system that to me feels like a 2035 ish kind of thing. Right. It's going to take a while to retrain the way people think about that. Right. Yeah. I mean, again, it's just comes down to demand, consumer demand. Yeah. It's like language, you know, I actually think it comes down to like that, the number of people that actually have most of their wealth in Bitcoin right, and thus want to spend it because they have nothing else to spend. But the vast majority of people have no wealth, right? They just live paycheck to paycheck. So I had a conversation with somebody about this recently and my friend was saying to me, he couldn't understand how that's, first of all, he had, this is one of the things he said to me, Corey, he's like, we're going to run out of Bitcoin. <laughs> this is a common thing people say. And I'm like, no, yeah. um, you got to read this guy, Jeff Booth's book, uh, The Price of Tomorrow. Everything is actually deflating. And uh, so if anybody thinks that you'd run out of Bitcoin, if you've gotten this far in the interview an hour in, you probably you're not a real Bitcoiner if, if you haven't, right? So, if, um, but that, which means you probably aren't here. Uh, but if you did, you're probably wondering the whole time, scratching your head. These guys are crazy. There's only 21 million Bitcoins, which is 2.1 quadrillion Satoshis. I, you're going to run out. And it's like, explain to everybody why that's not the case, okay? Because that's, that's- It's okay because there's 2.1 quintillion millisats. There's enough for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> right. But no, I mean, I, it's just, you know, some things that we buy, we're aware of, uh, deflation at work and prices because some things we buy keep getting cheaper mm. um and that can be either you know a tv could be cheaper or you can get like much more tv for the same amount of money like the tv you can get for a thousand bucks today is just epic compared to what you could get for a thousand bucks 10 years ago that's you know the deflationary influence of technology at work technology by definition is a massive deflationary force um so it's really the only things that you know naturally should go up in price really are things maybe connected to you know, human effort. And that's only if you're in an inflationary, uh, currency environment, mm -hmm. you know, so the prices of, so you everything know, that you look uh, around that's made, yeah. made in your room will over time start to deflate if they can't continue to change them. If technology is involved, exactly. If, te if technology is involved in the manufacture of that, the, the cost of that good or that service should come down, you know, some things like in home, but even like landscapers and things like that, those prices will will drop over time. And under a Bitcoin price, standard, right? they will. Yes, that's what I mean. Under a Bitcoin standard, they will. Absolutely. Yeah, because there's only 21 million Bitcoins and there's going to be a massive global fight all the time through self-organizing market activity to try to get your hands on more sats by adding value through your fruits of your labor and your thinking. And be, through AI and machine learning and stuff like that, a lot of jobs will be eliminated over time, which will be totally fine in a Bitcoin standard as well, right? Listen, it's going to solve a lot of problems. We don't know all the problems that it's going to solve and it will create some new ones. It'll create some new problems and there will be entrepreneurial opportunities and there already are, right? Like it, it already, you can spot things that are like, oh, this is going to be different. That's an opportunity. I want to be one of the first entrepreneurs to tackle that one. Uh, or I, you know, I've got my company and I want to put a little, you know, Swan X or Swan Labs team on that little hit squad to try to figure out something to do in that space, that kind of thing. You know, I, 
I'm anyway, I'm bullish on all the opportunities that will be created. Um, before we hop, I'm going to, I'm going to talk two things. The first I'm going to say is, um, I had, uh, Alex on from the giving block and I'm sure you're familiar, right? I thought that was pretty dope what they were doing. It's kind of cool. Allowing people to dip, donate Bitcoin, um, to your favorite charity. Are you guys going to do something like this? It seems like it's something that Swan would do at some point. Yeah. I mean, we've been doing it for a long time. I mean, people can give Bitcoin to whatever, and lots of people give Bitcoin to their church and, you know, political campaigns. Uh, we also do a lot of donating. You, you have bit, givebitcoin.io. I've never checked it out, but I, I read it in your bio earlier today. I've never heard of it. So what is mm-hmm. that, by the way? Yeah. So that was the initial product. The first thing we launched was a gifting product and then people were buying it for themselves so much that we split out and started Swan. Um, but yeah, we actually just relaunched gifting inside of Swan uh, for the holidays. So we've had thousands and thousands of gifts and obviously Mac Jones used that and I did a ton of holiday gifting. I think I gave over 200 Bitcoin gifts to people. And and his thing over a giving block is that he gives it only to nonprofits. You guys can also offer that as well. So to anybody. Yeah. So it's not that differentiated, unfortunately, for his product because you're doing the same thing, but he's focusing on it. So that's his only focus. So that in itself makes it maybe a business, I guess, right? Yeah. I don't know. I've, I've never heard of it. And is it a crypto thing? He's also doing crypto. I didn't mention that, but yes, he's also doing that. I think, you know, Coinbase launched that in 2016 with a lot of fanfare and it's been out there for five years, uh, letting people donate crypto to whatever. Because you get unrealized gains and the point is you don't want to sell, pay tax and that. Yeah. So that's the idea. Nobody cares about the Coinbase thing, including Coinbase. So we'll see how it goes. Okay. Um, I think the Bitcoin thing, because, and and you saw this with, uh, with Charity Water, Scott Harrison, Mm -hmm. um, you know, and I introduced him to the mag folks and got him a conference slot to announce that, but doing a Bitcoin endowment with the, you know, legal promise to hold for uh, at least five years with that Bitcoin donation. Yeah. Um, you know, I rag on the Winklevi sometimes, but that was pretty dope that they matched the 50 Bitcoin gift and put up 50 of their own, um, for that. And, and, you know, that's, that's one of those rare charities where you can actually see the work that they do. And they track all the finances yeah. down to the penny and they actually do what they say. So um, I think that resonated with Bitcoiners and, you know, nice that a few people stepped up and, and helped out there. So I'd like to see more of that. We can facilitate that pretty easily, like extremely easily. So feel free to get in touch if you want. Um, you know, I think before we break, like, I think it would be useful to talk about, um, you know, maybe just some of the things that we're doing at Swan sure. and that what we have available. So we've gone uh, real hard after the whole retirement market and these setups. And we now have like by far the cheapest setup. So I think it's like 300 bucks to set up an IRA and no annual fee. Whereas nobody else has. This is a self-directed IRA, correct? Self-directed IRAs. Exactly. Yeah. So it's like monumentally inexpensive or something mm-hmm. like, so get in touch. Um, Terrence is heading that up. Yeah. Uh, Terrence Yang. Um, you can find him on Twitter or just hit me up directly um, to figure that out. But um, yeah, so that one is really good. We've also been international for a year now um, and probably 30 or 40, 40% of our business comes from outside the US now. Um, so that's all handled through Swan Private as well. Um, so you can get in touch with us, you know, any country around the world. We're, we've got Turkish buyers and Hong Kong buyers and Taiwanese and Egyptian and, and all through Latin America and stuff like that. So that's pretty cool. Um, and then I guess the other thing I would just tease, which is just kind of uh, near and dear to my heart, is like Bitcoin Ventures has become yeah. like a really cool vehicle. Um, we're closing in on 500 LPs now in the Angelus Syndicate. You can sign up at BitcoinVentures.com. Just did our fifth deal. 
Uh, and it's just, it's getting to be easier and easier to cut a check of like three or 400 K, you know, just collecting checks over a couple of days. Uh, we did a Galois a few months ago that took four hours. Um, this most recent one we did was, uh, was Revault. I think that was like two or three days. So, you know, it's, it's nice to be able to add that. I'm also on the advisory board of a committed capital fund, the Bitcoin venture fund, which is, uh, you know, uh, Trammel ventures and Chris Calicott and that crew, but, uh, you know, 1031 obviously is a big investor in Swan. Mm-hmm. Love that they've gotten Odell involved there. And that's a committed capital fund. Uh, Elise is kicking ass with Stillmark. You know, there's just, there's more and more funding for these Bitcoin startups. So, you know, get in touch if you're building in the space. Uh, I'm not investing much right now, just kind of participating in our Angelus syndicates, um, but I can definitely help and, uh, and love to love to give some support to other people building in Bitcoin. And, and this is really important because this is why the shitcoin market has exploded because they're putting money into it. So the people that would otherwise maybe create a Bitcoin only company, if they can't get the funding, they're going to go where the money's at. So it's, it's great for the Bitcoiners kind of coming together. And and I think there needs to be a real institutional money. Like there needs to be $100 million plus funds as well doing this kind of thing. That's where yeah. I think you're going to see real innovation happening. And you pump the valuations up like they're all doing in the shitcoin space, right? Just push them up a little <laughs> bit so they can get – because honestly, you, you, yeah. valuation at that state, as you know – it's more of an art than a science in the earlier days, right? Yeah. So higher valuation, more money in. And I mean this, if you would consider starting a shitcoin company instead of a Bitcoin company because you couldn't get the funding, don't get in touch with me. <laughs> I don't want to hear from you. So I only want to hear from Bitcoiners that are actually building things. I'll help you. If you're a capitalist, how dare you? <laughs> at the end of the day, at the end of the day, that we, we do know that people will do that though. I think that they're not going to do well. I think they're going to hire the wrong people. They're going to have team mutinies. They're going to have like lead engineers quit when they don't add Ethereum. Like if you're leading a Bitcoin company and you aren't a Bitcoiner, like you're fucked. But the point is, Corey, if you want to struggle and you're going to get 100,000, 200,000 versus someone giving you a $3 million check, it's it's enticing to young kids who are 22, 25 years old, right? So they're like, shit, you know, I'm going to go on that path and I'm going to get to scale faster, get to an exit faster and create more wealth and get better impact on society. That's that's the thing, right? So I'm just saying- I don't think for, they'll have better impact on society. I think it's- Or, or more wealth you, for society. You're getting ideological either. here for a second? Let's not. <laughs> I don't think so. I'm not. And it's okay. This will be good. No, no. No, what I'm saying is, look, you were you were talking specifically about Bitcoiners versus shitcoiners, and that individual founder may create more value for themselves. Correct. They may be able to do some rent extraction, and let's hope, like all those people, hit me up once you once you get your exit. Hit me up; we'll put it in Bitcoin for you. That's <laughs> totally fine. But I'm just saying that if show me the incentives, I show you the outcome. Right? The old saying. And what I'm saying is, he's not this guy or this gal is not going to create value for society. I don't disagree with that. I'm just saying that in the Bitcoin space, we want to see more larger funds so that we can get the yeah. talented people to not get confused or distracted and just stay focused on what they know is true. That's all. It is gravy though. Yeah. Because what Bitcoin does have is the rational behavior of absolutely massive family offices and massive corporations and massive governments that actually spend more time on this stuff than crypto VCs that have the poor incentive of short time to liquidity. So if you actually have to buy and hold this asset for a long time, your, you know, pension funds, your governments, your, your public companies, they are doing the heavy lifting for Bitcoin. It's square, square being down for Bitcoin or it's called block now, but Jack Dorsey's company, like them being down for Bitcoin is worth like a thousand shitcoin startups. 
MicroStrategy being super into Bitcoin is worth a thousand shitcoin startups. So yes, it does suck that there's like way more crypto fund VC than Bitcoin focused VC, but Bitcoin startups also can tap the world of angels. And there are, you know, probably four or 5 million people globally that would cut an angel check into a Bitcoin startup because they're Bitcoiners. And they can tap normal VCs that want nothing to do with crypto bullshit, but do understand that Bitcoin is a platform you can build on and that actually has revenue generating business models. So there is an imbalance if you only look at it like, you know, crypto focused VC versus Bitcoin focused VC, but we have public companies, governments, family offices, and, you know, the world of angels and normie VCs that will fund Bitcoin startups. So it's really not that much of a worry. Yeah. If you just look at the AUM at Andreessen Horowitz and those and the likes of them, that's what you're competing with. So more money coming in is what I'm saying. We need larger funds yeah. to compete because at the end of the day, they're, they're, they're taking and distracting the market and the growth of Bitcoin when that second layer of Bitcoin can be built, the Bitcoin rails, if there are just more capital coming into it. So I'm just saying I applaud with what you're doing and, and I think it's great. I just would love to see institutional money coming, organize itself in a typical way like we've seen others do because we can see what they did with Ethereum and what they've done on the top of the ecosystem there and and uh, and all of the values created for investors to the world, to your mm-hmm. point, not creating a lot of value to the world. It's a bunch of JPEGs being sold you know, left and right. <laughs> it's like, what are we doing here? Yeah. Um, but that could have been on top of Bitcoin actually and, and then you would have the underlying asset of Bitcoin going up even faster had they had an incentive to do that, you know, but they can't create a shit coin. So, <laughs> cause it's on top of Bitcoin. Right. Um, but anyway, um, the last thing I wanted to bring up, which I, I heard you say, and you said it wasn't the, you weren't the first one to say it. I thought it was really interesting was the big long, right? Uh, Michael Saylor, mm-hmm. they got to write this story, right? The big long versus Michael Burry, the big short, um, you know, basically buying Bitcoin, you're going, you're going long Bitcoin, but you're shorting fiat. Um, I, me- I heard you just mention this. I don't know if you wanted to touch on it because I thought it was an interesting kind of, um, statement is no, I think it's great. Wasn't wasn't that Adam McKay, the director that did the Big Short? Um, yeah, I don't. I think it that. was. Yeah, yeah. So he he just dropped the uh, Don't Look Up DiCaprio Jennifer Lawrence movie on Friday. Yeah, I actually thought it was a pretty good movie. <laughs> yeah, I'm not done with it yet. I watched about half of it last night, but it was hilarious so far. It really reminds me of where we're at in the world today, man. It's like the world could be ending if we're arguing over it. It's like what is happening? Yeah, it's pretty funny. Um, but yeah, I think. Uh, that movie's got to happen. Uh, I'd love to love to get Swan Studios involved in that at some point. Um, yeah, it'd be pretty cool. We're working on our our third project right now. Uh, but yeah, if we can if we can start, we've got some people involved, like the guys that did this Machine Greens that are doing a, a new either feature length documentary or it'll be like a five or six part series. Like that one's going to be super high quality. I think it'll end up on Netflix or Amazon. Um, you know, they have the kind of connections. Like one of the guys actually ran distribution in Europe for either Warner's or Fox for a decade or something like they can actually get big shit done. So I think you'll see more and more of it. Um, I think Lauren Siegman's got some good connections and she's working on a project, hopefully for Netflix or something like that. So I I think you'll see more and more um, really high quality Bitcoin, like sort of cultural impact having content come out in the next couple of years. I'm bullish, but yeah, I'd love to see that movie. And I don't know who would, who would play sailor? Wouldn't Sailor just oh. insist on playing Sailor? Like, who could play <laughs> exactly. Him? Who would play like the big long? Who's that who, guy? Who could play him? I'm thinking about that now. It's like, what movie star has his kind of uh, character MO? Like, I don't know. Um, I mean, actually, one of the guys that had a small role in the big short, who's uh, the Emmy winning uh, co-star of uh, Succession. I forget his name. Uh, the guy that plays Roman. Not No, 
Ken. Yeah, Ken. We yeah, he plays Ken. Him. He'd be pretty good. I'm blanking on his name. But yeah, he could play Sailor. He talks tech and he's super intense. I'm looking through it right now. See if I can yeah. remember who it was. Oh, Jeremy Strong. Is that it? Yeah, Jeremy Strong. He is intense as F and I think could dial up his Sailor if he had to. <laughs> That's a, that's a good one. I got to throw that one out on Twitter. Who should play Michael Saylor in the big long? <laughs> you should totally throw it out there. Absolutely. Uh, hit me if you put it out there. I'll, I'll definitely do what we have. Yeah, cool. he'd be good. He'd be really good. That's funny. Awesome. Um, Corey, Corey Clipston, thanks for coming on. Jay Gould, thank you for having me on. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. As always, good to hang out, man. Cool, man. <laughs>